The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 14th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Thousands of people have decided not to buy or renew their TV licence. The result is a shortfall of about a million euro a week to RTE. Something will have to be done if RTE is capable of existing into the long term. One proposal for saving the state broadcaster comes from People Before Profit, which says abolish the TV licence altogether by placing a 1% tax on the profits of all information and communications companies and an additional 1.5% big tech tax on larger firms. It says it can establish a 1 billion euro media fund. Let's speak uh, to People Before Profit TD, Paul Murphy, who's on the line. Good morning to you. Thanks for joining us as always on the programme this morning, Paul. Uh, Half of this 1 billion or 500 million uh, would be used to fund RTE, but people wouldn't have to buy a TV licence. Is that correct? Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the TV licence is and always has been an unjust, regressive tax. You can call it a licence, but it's a tax of €160 on most households in the state, regardless of what income uh, they have. So it's, it's a very unfair tax. It's clear that with the scandals at RTE, the secret payments to Brian Tuberty, the very high salaries, the um, flip-flops, the slush fund, all of that, people are voting with their wallets and are choosing not to pay. I mean, we're heading for a situation where one in two people are not now paying their TV licence as it becomes uh, due because you had a 37% fall, but that comes on top of a pre-existing non-payment rate of about 15%. Um so it's time for the licence fee to, to go. Um, it's also time, I would say, for the commercial funding of RTE and the sponsorship and the advertising and everything else of RTE to go because I think that's where the rush really set in in terms of the culture at the top of RTE. That's what justified the extraordinary payments is we need to get the advertising in and so on. And is and that why you're suggesting that RTE would be state-funded uh, to the tune of €500 million? Euro? It seems an awful lot of money to run a broadcaster like RTE? Well, we think that public service broadcasting is extremely important. Um, it's arguably even more important today in a world dominated by multi-billionaires, um, owners of social media companies, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon mm-hmm. Musk, or even much of the traditional media, the likes of uh, the Murdoch Empire. Okay. Um, and actually having... You know, public service broadcasting that gives people true, accurate information, as well as producing, you know, quality entertainment, drama, etc., is really, really important. Okay, but the the loss of advertising revenue, uh, I suppose, is what I was asking uh, about in terms of this figure that you've come up with of 500 million, because it seems like an awful lot of money. Yeah, so at the moment, RT gets funding of about 350 million. So 2 million comes from the licence fee, 150 million or so comes from sponsorship and uh, advertising. And I do think it's clear, if you look at like where the scandal in RT originated, it is this distortion of public service broadcasting culture at the top of RT. It comes from the corrosive impact of this reliance on chasing after sponsorship and advertising. So instead, we think it's time to fund 
public service broadcasting properly. And um, so that's an increase in funding to uh, RTE to allow them to deal with um, some of your real kind of capital underspend. If you look at the kind of studios that RTE have and so on, they, they need investment. Um, and then in addition, this other half of the, the billion euros, which would be go then to like local radio stations, local newspapers, to try and ensure that we have a flourishing media environment, a pluralist media uh, environment um, with state support and taxing those who are responsible for the distortion of much of our media and draining off advertising revenue from much of our media in order to uh, fund it. Mm. Uh, Why would it go to local radio stations or or local newspapers when they are for-profit organisations? And uh, I presume that they would continue to run commercials or feature advertising, as the case may be. Yeah, Effectively, it will be a phase-out model of for-profit advertising. So recognising that, you know, the likes of LFM currently rely on advertising to uh, survive. Um, you, you wouldn't have an imposition on year one of applying for funding that you need to end all advertising. But over time, moving to a situation where local radio stations, newspapers could choose that we're going to go for a for-profit public service uh, model and will apply for funding, you know, grants over a multi-year period from um, this fund to do so, or, and people obviously, of course, would be free to do so, Mm. continue on the model of uh, for-profit. But trying to, you know, support our our media uh, across the country and not have it distorted by the drive for advertising sponsorship and the commercial pressures that can come with that. Mm. Okay, and um, what cuts be necessary at RTE because people are, are very annoyed. I, I'd have thought the starting point for this would be to get to a situation where people are happy to pay their licence fee because they feel it's value for money. Well, we absolutely need cuts at the top of RTE. So we say that there has to be a salary cap of €100,000. Uh, Nobody needs to be paid more than that. An end to you know, the third-party arrangements that various presenters had with commercial sponsorship, so no outside commercial sponsorship uh, deals, um, and end to the situation where, um, you know, high-profile presenters effectively set themselves up as private companies mm. as opposed to employees in order to be able to minimise their uh, tax uh, exposure. And so that at the top. But in, similarly at the bottom, in the practice of bogus self-employment, um, which is done against the wishes and the interests of uh, workers to minimise RTE's exposure to pensions and so on, and um, ensure that everyone is being paid you know, a decent wage, stop the attempts of pay cuts at, at ordinary workers to treat people properly, mm. um, and then really have a quality public service broadcast. Yeah, well, I, I mean, what are you going to do? Apparently the BBC have loads of vacancies and they're crying out for Irish presenters, and if you're asking uh, Joe Duffy to work for less than €300,000 a year, or Miriam O'Callaghan or Claire Byrne to work for less than €350,000 a year, you're going to see an exodus of people going to the BBC, aren't you? You won't be able to hold on to these stars? Well, let's see. I mean, I haven't seen Ryan Tuberty get such an offer from RT, from BBC uh, yet. Um, I'm not sure where we're going to see it. I think it, it suits them, of course, to say we're hardly sought after, we can jump tomorrow um, if there's any attempt to cut our pay. I'm not sure that's what we will see. Um, but in any case, I think you know, you, you have lots of talent within RTE. You know, that was one of the most obnoxious parts of the scandal was the the top talent, um, as it was referred to, implying that everybody else didn't have any talent. And there's lots of people with talent with RTE. 
most the vast majority of whom are actually paid much less than a hundred thousand euros a year. So I have every confidence that we could have you know, appropriately qualified um, and talented. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what he was going to say there, but it appears that uh, the line has dropped out on Paul Murphy. But a uh, hundred thousand euro a, a year—it does seem a, a lot of money. Uh, I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that as a, a figure, or if you'd buy into the argument that if you pay peanuts, you'll get monkeys, uh, like the type of monkeys I suppose that you get on local radio. But if you want to let us know, our telephone number is oh four one nine eight three two thousand. That's oh four one nine eight three two thousand. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. That's 0861800658. If you want to send us a text or a text through WhatsApp, and you can email Michael at lmfm.ie. Paul Murphy is back on the line. Apologies again. I'm not sure what caused the dropout, but thanks for coming back to us. Uh, you were going to say that 100,000 uh, was enough for all staff in RTA, and that you wouldn't have that type of public outcry. I take it in the future. Uh, sorry about that. Yeah, I could, I could still hear you. Um, yeah, I think, I think for 100,000 euros, we could ensure that we have quality, talented presenters across today on, on RTE mm. um, and people we would, would be getting proper public service broadcasting. I also am doubtful of this idea that all of the top presenters would just be jumping ship to, to BBC and be offered huge amounts of money over there. Okay. I just, well, well, well Brian Tuberty is paid about 250000 isn't he? Uh, and he continues to be paid despite being at the centre of uh, this controversy and forced off air uh, by the management of RTA. Were you surprised to hear over the weekend that he continues to be paid? Yes. Uh, I mean, I understand that probably contractually and legally it may be difficult for RTA to get out of that. Um, but it certainly is problematic, the fact that Significant amounts of public money are being handed over to Ryan Tuberty, who isn't currently doing any work for RTE, certainly in terms of uh, of uh, presenting. So um, ultimately, that's, this is going to be a decision for RTE. But if I was RTE management, I would be trying to get out of that on uh, as quickly and as cheaply as it Okay. Um, we, we are obviously in a bit of trouble with the line. We'll try and stay with it uh, for uh, another moment or, or two. Uh, I was going to ask you uh, about other steps that you'd like to see taken at RTE if there are going to be conditions attached to this funding that you're proposing of €500 million Euro a, a year. Uh, would you continue to fund the RTE Orchestra? Would you continue to fund Lyric FM? Uh, you've said you'd cut the salaries of the big stars, uh, but would you look at the content of some of the programmes and ask if that comes under the remit of public service broadcasting and if RTE can do other things uh, than uh, provide programming uh, to people that is not what would be considered to be public service broadcasting? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, again, this isn't going to be up to a government. You know, it's important that it would be a separate, independent board overseeing this. That, and you know what I mean? If I was Tim Dock, I wouldn't be saying, you'll be changing this, this programme and I don't like that programme, change that, right? Yeah. But broadly speaking, I think that... Um, we shouldn't see public service broadcasting as just limited to kind of news, current affairs and weather. But I think that's does, very important. Should, should it or could it include uh, reruns of Friends and RTE2 or whatever it is? Well, I think ideally if you're a properly funded RTE, you're able to fund the production of 
you know, modern programs set today, you know, the likes of, of normal people, which I think wasn't originally funded by RT, ended up being done by the, the BBC mm. because of an issue in terms of funding. The, the likes of that, that's also part of public service broadcasting. Okay, but take the likes of Kin. If you give RTE 500 million euro, they're going to pay these production companies uh, to come up with these programmes, aren't they? And that will leave uh, a commercial company, Virgin Media, struggling to find decent programmes that it can buy in. Good, home-produced Irish programmes. I think at the end of the day, if you put more money into the media, and that's what we're talking about, the result will be more high-quality programmes coming out for the, the public, and that is a good thing. Again, similarly, the, the option will be open to Virgin Media to apply for this public uh, funding and public support on the basis of a phase-out of the um, commercial for-profit orientation over over time. Um, but I think that would fundamentally be a good thing if we had more, you know, kids, more normal people, more love-hate, more, you know, these quality Irish dramas that we've seen before that can be, should be part of the remit of a public service broadcaster. Okay, interesting times. Uh, There's no doubt about that, uh, given uh, the amount of people. I think it's 5,000 fewer people uh, paying for their TV licence on a a weekly basis, which really is an incredible state of uh, affairs, and no doubt something will have to be done, uh, and that will have to uh, be decided uh, going into the budget, uh, I would imagine, at the outset. Paul Murphy, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments uh, that have uh, come to us uh, this morning. Somebody's saying, we pay big money to our government and to the TDs and we don't get value for money it's a time to review that too uh, that's uh, Tom uh, thanks very much indeed somebody else says I bought my home 28 years ago in the t- countryside and I never got a TV licence the previous owner told me that they didn't have one and advised me that if I get a licence I'll always have to get one I take it that the TV licence inspector didn't have you on his radar uh, Deirdre and Kel says Ryan Tuberty and Marty Morrissey uh, we're on a pink Barbie bike on the M50 motorway. Uh, thank you very much indeed, uh, Deirdre, for that. Didn't hear about that, but I take you at your word. And thanks for bringing us uh, that breaking news uh, this morning. 0419832000 if you want to ring us. You can comment by texting or WhatsApping 086 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Sure, you heard in uh, the bulletins uh, the Labour Party spokesperson on education talk about uh, the number of vacancies in Irish schools. 643 primary school jobs advertised, 456 jobs uh, at secondary schools around the country. Over a thousand teachers short going into the new school year. Aon O'Reardon is on the line, and uh, a very good morning to you. And Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. How does that figure sound to your ears? It, it seems like an awful lot of teachers to me. Uh, is it or is this generally the case uh, as uh, the school term begins? No, it's it's not usual. And part of it is is not the government's fault. And, and, and part of it is, in, in my view, a number of teachers may have over the COVID years built up their expectation to go abroad and they're doing that now and we can't blame them for that and, and, and that is something that is um, 
is what they're doing. There's also a population bulge, which I think the department will, will think that in five years' time that they won't, this problem won't be there anymore. And I think that's also part of the issue that the department will be resisting government attempts maybe to address this because they'll see, feel over a couple of years that this will resolve itself. However, we can't have a scenario where our children are going into classrooms, either primary or secondary school, and not being taught by qualified teachers or they'll have a, a kind of patchwork uh, system of education being put together in order to, to keep the show on the road. Um, this should really have been have been seen coming. Uh, there's been a number of issues over a number of years, at second level in particular, um, around a number of subjects, such as like this home economics and Irish and geography. But now it's really come to a head where uh, the teachers are just not available. In more urban areas, it's a housing issue. Um, because of the cost of rent, the cost of accommodation, the cost of mortgages. And so, in particularly in urban Ireland and the East Coast, people are, are, are leaving those areas and going back maybe west because they just can't afford to live in the East Coast, can't afford to live in Dublin, can't afford to live um, in that region. Mm. So, this really should have been predicted by government. And look, uh, I don't expect the minister to have all the answers immediately, but I do expect the minister to have is to recognise the problem, to at least accept that there is an issue and for her to be engaging with the teacher unions and also with governmental colleagues to see what fixes there are. Uh, uh, the, the other side of it, though, is that they're, they're funded posts, aren't they? I mean, it's not as if uh, we need more than a 1,000 uh, teachers in schools, but the government won't fund it. These are uh, advertised jobs. Yeah, these are jobs that, that exactly, they're funded posts. Mm. So maybe there needs to be a conversation about why the, the profession isn't as as attractive as it once was. Mm. Uh, maybe there's something... Uh, quite profound going on in the teaching profession, maybe it's a lack of respect. I mean, teachers comparatively uh, on the European um, scale are actually reasonably well paid. Um, your average Irish teacher, and I am one, wouldn't admit to that, but it is true. However, what we don't have in, in the European uh, context is is the high cost of living. Mm. Uh, th- those sort of, of overheads that other European cities don't have and the cost of accommodation is certainly one of those. So uh, our frustration in the Labour Party is is more about the lack of a response rather than um, rather than anything else. If we felt from the minister that, that she was accepting that there was a problem and there was a number of, of avenues that she was pursuing in, in conjunction with the trade unions, and I think that we'd, we'd feel as if at least there was an energy behind resolving the problem, or those schools who are looking for teachers to fill the post could feel that maybe this is September's problem, but it'll be resolved over a period of time. Uh, that doesn't really seem to be the case. There doesn't seem to be any energy behind resolving this, these problems that so many schools uh, face. And, of course, parents will be worried about sending their child into a classroom where potentially the the person at the top of the room isn't a qualified teacher. Mm. And potentially, how long could that be the situation for the child? Well, the population bulge, as the department, I think, are, are, are concentrating on, uh, it, could be, it could be five years. Um, and if this isn't resolved and, and we don't have a longer term look at, at the teaching profession and, and paying conditions who knows where, where it could end but this has been bubbling under the surface quite, for quite a number of years people say it's been bubbling under the surface for about 10 years it comes in peaks and troughs I remember I qualified 20 years ago um, there was any amount of jobs for those of us who qualified and then 10 years ago when I was in the position of being a principal um, there were there were fully qualified, te- fully qualified teachers and uh, um, sort of applying for an SNA jobs in the school because because there was no jobs. So it does kind of go an ebb and flow. But to be, to be honest, for the last seven years or so, this has been flagged around certain subjects at second yeah. level. But it, it is it is quite important, 
on two levels. One, that schools should be able to live, to exist and to, and to you know, uh, provide that service for children. But also that if you are a teacher, if you go into that profession, if you, you know, it, it is a noble profession. It is something that we want people to enter into, that you should be able to live uh, you know, a comfortable existence mm. on the east coast of the country uh, in an urban setting and be able to teach in, in a primary school or secondary school. Well, I imagine when experience. you qualified 20 years ago, it would have been unthinkable that under normal circumstances, everything being even, if you like, uh, that a, a teacher couldn't afford to live in Dublin. Uh, that wasn't a, a consideration mm. of ours. We, we had every expectation to be able to live in, uh, and mm. work in Dublin. And uh, and now, in more recent years, obviously people have sought to go to the Far East in order for a number of years to maybe earn a few bob that's come into the mix now, and I understand that. And that is something, and certainly in terms of a, a, a temporary scenario that is outside of the um, outside of the, the government's control, and I accept mm. that. However, um, we have let this drift now. And it's not just the problem, it's the fact that there doesn't seem to be energy behind solving the problem. Okay. And as I say, you know, we should have young people entering into their leaving search year, looking at going into the teaching profession as, as a job that they would enjoy, giving back to their, to their country, giving yeah. back to their, uh, you know, to that very noble profession. But if they look at teachers not being able to, you know, live and, yeah. uh, mm. and, and uh, anywhere near where they're from, uh, and to be able to afford, you know, accommodation. Yeah. But then they're going to look elsewhere for, for a profession, and that's not healthy. Yeah. Well, I, I can't imagine anybody in their right mind uh, who wouldn't feel that a, a teacher should be able to afford to live in the community that they're working in. Uh, so where is the solution there? Is it to pay all teachers more, or is there a special rate needed in Dublin and some other areas where housing is so well, expensive? We, 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 we have we have advocated that it's not an, a, a perfect solution, but we're looking at the London model, and there has been a London waiting for that's W E I G H T. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the teacher coming out of me again. Sorry, um, <laughs> the London allowance. Um, uh, for the, since about 1927, they've had various different forms of, of, of a London allowance for because they acknowledge that living in, in London has been more expensive. The cost of living is more expensive. The, the cost of accommodation is more expensive, and they weren't able to attract public servants to live and work in London. Now that would be an expensive solution. Uh, I'm sure it wouldn't be popular in various different parts of the country to think that Dublin teachers are, are will be paid more. But it is more expensive to have schools that aren't staffed with fully qualified teachers. That is much more expensive in the long run. Um, so I think that's something that that government should uh, should investigate. Mm. Well, I, I, I'm sure uh, that children or parents of children want uh, their children to be taught by teachers, qualified teachers. And uh, the consequence of, of that uh, unknown, we're uh, approaching uh, the new term uh, and it, it will be uh, a much better year for many parents of primary school going children because of uh, the school book scheme. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And government are to be... Are, are to be Congratulations on that. I mean, look, in the Labour Party, we don't stand our time having a go just for the sake of it. We do think the free book scheme is something we've been advocating for for a number of years, but Norma Foley has, has done it, and she's to be congratulated on it. It needs to move on to second level, which I believe she's in negotiations with her government and her partners on that, and that will be a welcome announcement as well. But uh, voluntary contributions are, are, are still being expected of parents. They need to go. They need to be banned. We need, yeah. we need to absolutely drive on with this concept of free education. They are, though, are they not? And the minister has been very strong uh, in uh, what she has said about voluntary contributions over a number of months that they cannot be demanded of parents. There's a soft power that voluntary contributions have and and look, schools don't want to be asking for them. 
Um, but there have been, in a minority of cases, a connection between the, the payment of a voluntary contribution and access to lockers or access to various mm. different school resources, and that's wrong. But why does a school have to ask for money? It shouldn't have to. Mm. To, to turn on Finland, the light and heat. Yeah, because yeah, well, that's in Finland, 50 years ago, they banned fundraising mm. because what happens is that the school is just funded directly from the, uh, uh, from the state. Yeah. Uh, and we need to return to that kind of an ethic. And the minister said she responded because she gave €90 million Euro, uh, additional funding uh, to the capitation grants. Right. Well, I mean, but, but these voluntary contributions are still being asked for. Uh, parental parental mm. associations are still fundraising bodies. We have to break this toxic link between money and education. Far too many parents feel they have to go to the fundraiser, they have to provide the, the voluntary contribution, they have to pay for the books at second level, they have to pay for the uniform, they have to pay for school transport, mm. they have to pay for, for school trips. If we were to delete all that, if the school was to, was to be funded centrally for everything it does, and that the fundamental conversation that the parent has with the school is about education. Wouldn't that be a, mad, a, 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 a liberation of, the, of, of education in this country? Mm-hmm. And that we don't think when it, com- when it comes to school life that we automatically think of money. Because you are less likely to engage fully in school life, parent-teacher meetings, school events, if you think you're going to be reminded about money. There's a humiliation effect here, and it has to go. And the government have made a start on free books, we need to move to every single area of school life and so that schools don't have to have fundraisers. Mm. And I think people, when they listen to this show, should think, why should a school have a fundraiser? It's wrong. Mm-hmm. And if, it, if, we, if, we, if we recast our brains in that direction... We should have a better expectation of yeah. what our schools and I think, I think you could. Yeah, I think you could extend that argument to why should I give money to St. Vincent de Paul or why does anybody need uh, to go to St. Vincent de Paul for charitable help? Uh, well, I, that's our, our argument in the Labour Party is, yeah. is, is one on, on state provision. We don't make mm. any apologies for that. We're not somebody who go down the route of arguing for tax cuts. We believe that if, you know, if the taxation that people pay was to, was to go towards absolutely free uh, access to education mm. and health, mm. uh, etc., and housing um, and other state provisions, well then I think people will feel an awful lot happier about the tax that they pay. But that's the argument that we've always made. Uh, we aren't always mm. successful with that but we will keep doing it anyway. Can I just ask you very, very briefly about one other issue ahead of uh, the school term because I suppose uh, there's a lot of unknowns uh, before the year even begins, but would you be concerned that the big issue of contention next year will be sex education in secondary schools? No, I don't, it shouldn't be. This is being whipped up unnecessarily by people who are trying to play on people's fears. Mm. But it I is know, being whipped to, up. This is the point. It is being whipped up. The and I think there'll be more whipping up. It was because the vast majority of sex education is about protection of young people, that they have knowledge and power in that knowledge. I was, you know, as I said, I was a teacher. Uh, people who are trying to create a culture war really have to, like, people need to look at these people as to who they are and what their real agenda is. If you have an issue with sex ed in your school, Go talk to the teacher, go talk to the principal, or talk to your child yourself. I would much rather for my child to be taught in school from a curriculum that has been tested by experts rather than learning stuff in a bike shed from an older person, an older child, or a different child. So this is what is at stake here. Don't listen to Facebook warriors. Listen to your teachers who are trained to do what they do. And remember that sex education is more often than not about self-empowerment, it's about self-confidence, and it's about protecting yourself from assault or abuse. That's what it's about. And the rest of the other elements of it, which are being whipped up unnecessarily, Mm. 
are, are by people who really should know better. Uh, and are very vocal. Aon, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Aon O'Reardon is the Labour Party spokesperson on education. Michael Reed on LMFM. It really is an odd situation, isn't it, Uh, that teachers can't afford to live in uh, the communities uh, that they work, and that certainly would be the case in Dublin, probably in some of uh, the towns locally with the price of housing, and the price of housing has never been higher as part of this 15-year housing crisis. And one of uh, the solutions, you may argue, is to do something with all of those empty buildings in all of the towns and villages that we have seen across the country but what to do with them well the Hardware Association of Ireland has a few suggestions and they're contained in its pre-budget submission Martin Markey is the Chief Executive of the Hardware Association Ireland Group and a very good morning to you Martin and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning tell us a, a little bit about some of your proposals if you would please well, firstly, Michael, thank you very much for, for having us on the programme. And looking at, and I just heard the uh, end bit of, the, of, of, your, of your last statement there, but uh, looking at where we are at the moment, I suppose um, there are a number of factors in relation to, to empty homes. And I, I think everyone knows at this stage that demand far outstrips supply. And uh, I suppose part of that was during the, during the recession, we were building 10,000 when we, when we needed about 25,000 per year. So the population since uh, 2006 in, in the state has grown by, by 21%, but our housing stock has only grown by, by 15%. So we've got a considerable backlog there. Mm. And I suppose in the last, and as well as that, we have, we have a, a very considerable vacancy rate in, in empty homes. Um, and if we're looking at uh, between 2016 and 2022, we had, 80, we had 86,000 homes that were, were, were occupied in 2016 that were vacant in 22. So that for us is, is, is you know, the lower mm. hanging fruit, shall we say. No, they can't, they can't be in that much disrepair. They're probably it, most you know, likely not derelict buildings at this stage. Correct, correct. And, mm. and most likely they, they can be brought back to life and rejuvenated and repopulated for, for, for a reasonable uh, price because affordability is is a huge factor, as, as you know, and certainly, mm. certainly with new build at at the moment. And if we're looking at, uh, for for example, if we're looking at Laos and and Meath between both counties, there are about there are about five thousand units that would fit into that category. Uh, as in, they were occupied in 2016 and, and, and they were vacant in, in, in 22. So w- what we're looking at is a suite of proposals that would bring them, uh, bring them back to life. And mm. I suppose, uh, you know, in the last year, there's been very considerable changes made in terms of uh, empty homes and the grants available. So, for example, if you're looking at an empty home, uh, the grant uh, available to a purchaser of that is is about 50,000 and potentially 75,000 because you can now combine it with, with an SEAI grant. Mm-hmm. And likewise, for, for derelict, it's, it's uh, 70,000 plus 25. And so it ends up at 95,000. And there are vacant homes officers in each of the local authorities. So we, we've come a long way in, in, well, in, in, in the last a, An year. awful lot of money, uh, indeed, uh, to yes. give in grants uh, for somebody to renovate uh, their home. So why, why are people not availing of those grants and carrying out the work? Well, well, they are. I think the, I think the applications are about four thousand nationally, but there are a number of obstacles to it. There, are, and that's what our our new uh, pre-budget submission is is looking at. Number one, I suppose, the, you know, we have one vacant homes officer in each of the local authorities. That needs to be beefed up, unquestionably. That needs 
that needs to be beefed up. So they need they need more resources in there to handle uh, the number the number of applications. In terms of the grants themselves and the issues with those, <clears throat> I suppose one issue is that you get the grant when the work is done. Um, so that could take, you know, that could take several months, uh, number one. So we're looking at a credit union bill, which will uh, give people, particularly, I think, first-time first time buyers, uh, it will give them a, for want of a better term, a bridging loan. So it will, it will cover that gap between applying for the grant and, and the work being done and you paying for the work and mm. then uh, you, you receiving the grant. So, so that, is, that is one thing. Um, the other uh, thing that we're looking at is a waiver on capital gains tax because it, we, we've been in contact with our counterparts in Scotland and they're a few years ahead of us in this. And what they have found is that I suppose that inertia is a, is a large part but quite often people inherit or they come into a, a, an older building and they don't know what to do with it. So mm. we're, we're looking at a, a possible obstacle uh, is, is, is people's inertia that they don't know as the owners of it, they don't know what to do with it. So we're looking at um, a waiver on the capital gains tax for a period of three years. Nice. So there's no mm. real excuse then not to, not, not to do anything. The other issue and the other major improvement, and you see it everywhere uh, at the moment, if, if you go around any of our towns or any of our villages, is are the areas above the shop. And there are, you know, there, there, there's huge potential there. Quite often there's one, two, three, or maybe four stories yeah. uh, above a, a shop or an old business. Now, the way the current grants are, are set out is that uh, it's, it's, it's largely one, one per person, so to speak. So if the owner of the property wanted to uh, rejuvenate it, he, would get, uh, he or she would get just one, one grant. So what we're looking at is an extension of the grant system to those multiple properties. So, you know, instead of, you know, doing one apartment above a, a, a shop, which in many cases wouldn't be practical anyway, but that the grant would be such that they could put in two or three apartments uh, above a shop, which I think would be a major breakthrough in terms of, of, of empty homes. And do you believe that's plausible? Because a lot of those units would have been empty for many decades or used as storerooms for decades. Yes. Uh, well, the grants themselves are, are, you know, they are attractive to enable people to do that. And not everyone, not every, not everyone is going to be suitable for that, or not every occasion. But there are enough out there, and you know, it is one of those things that once once you see it and the level of it, um, for example, our above the shop level of vacancy is way above that of our our, our European counterparts, way above. And, you know, any time you go to Europe and uh, you see the, the level of the amount of life there is in, in, in town centres, and we currently don't have that, but we, we should have it and, and it would be good to see it back. All right. We'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed for joining us today. Martin Markey is uh, the chief executive of the Hardware Association of Ireland. Now, a number of people in touch with us. Good to be getting your comments. And thanks to everybody who has taken the time so far to uh, share their thoughts with us. A text from someone who says, Michael, teachers, the pay is OK, but the cost of becoming a teacher, three grand a year for three or four years uh, to get your degree and then 15 grand for a master's. Most people can't afford 24 grand 
unjust fees, never mind resources, the costs of commuting, rent and general living expenses on top of it all. Thank you for that. Another text from somebody about the shortage of teachers saying, my daughter who had completed a BA had more than enough points in her leaving cert and had an A in Honours Irish and St Pat's didn't accept her. Good enough for the Department of Education. I feel sorry for the kids not having qualified tutors. Thanks uh, very much uh, for that. Uh, Matthew in Drogheda, thank you for your message too. He says Labour had been in government for over a hundred years with one party or another and have done nothing about schools uh, in their time in government. Thanks uh, for that, Matthew. Uh, a Navin listener says, Michael, I'm a, a member of uh, the Navin Environment Group and we spent hours, hours uh, a few weeks ago picking up alcohol bottles, cans and other rubbish after idiots who go there to drink and smoke. Uh, this is an unsafe place for decent people to walk. Uh, this is uh, the ramparts on the Athlumni Road. Uh, it, it should be safe for people to go for a walk. It's time Gardaí made it a no-go area for drunken louts. There have been assaults here. Stones are being thrown from Navan Garda Station. Local councillor is calling for the army to clean up the area in Navan and eliminate these assaults that are taking place on the ramparts on the Athlumni Road. Thanks indeed uh, for sharing that with us uh, as well this morning. Our phone number 041 983 2000, text or WhatsApp 086 1800 658. Email Michael at LMFM.ie. Has arrived. And that's uh, the United Nations uh, General Secretary uh, a couple of weeks ago spelling out uh, a crisis uh, that we've been facing for many decades but has got to the stage where it's now boiling point, uh, according to Antonio Guterres. The evidence is everywhere. Humanity has unleashed destruction. This must not inspire despair, but action. We can still stop the worst, but to do so, we must turn a year of burning heat into a year of burning ambition and accelerate climate action now. And maybe much of uh, that ambition lies with our young people, young people uh, around the world celebrated International Youth Day on Saturday. It's a day that celebrates the contributions, ideas, energy and creativity of young people in order for them to... Uh, foster positive change, not just for themselves, but also for their communities and uh, the rest of uh, the world. Let's speak to Jackie Corcoran, who's the communications and uh, the PR manager with World Vision Ireland. A very good morning to you, Jackie, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. The theme for the International Youth Day this year was Green Skills for Youth Towards a Sustainable World. What are the green skills? that young people should be learning? Well, um, it's a theme that I suppose, uh, Michael, first up, up, thank you very much for having me on this morning and uh, I, I welcome the opportunity to highlight this really vital area. Um, that that theme is one that really aligns with our day-to-day experiences on the ground um, with World Vision. Um, we're, we're part of... A, a, um, 
the world's biggest child and youth focused independent uh, international NGO and we're active in 100 countries. So we're, we're seeing the impacts of climate change on the ground um, because increasingly in uh, many of the countries that we're working in, there's a disproportionate impact on the ground there and um, people are, are um, experiencing firsthand already the uh, ravages of, of climate change. So I suppose this theme is um, about... Uh, young people, preparing young people for that changing world and equipping them with the skills to cope with um, this, the increasing challenges that we're facing. Um, we're also saying that it's it's time for increased youth involvement in climate decision making because I suppose the youth of today, they're already playing a, a leadership role in, in the fight to tackle climate change, mm. um, but they're not being given enough support. Um, the youth of today are the community and political leaders of the future. So on International Youth Day, we, we've basically been saying it's time for increased youth action and youth involvement in, in climate decision making. Is there any and, need to convince uh, young people of the need or that it is a pressing need at this stage? Is there any argument about climate change? Because you speak to older people and you'll hear... Uh, people tell you that uh, we always had uh, rain in the winter. Sure, when I was a lad, uh, we didn't have rain for three months and all of these things uh, have always happened in the world and I'm sure you know the arguments uh, better than I do, Jackie. Uh, But uh, do young people have any doubt that there is a, a, a climate crisis at this stage? I think you're absolutely right, Michael, in, in highlighting the fact that children are probably more aware than, than uh, sadly, the, the older generations that are in the positions of, of leadership. And I suppose that's where we're coming in and saying that our commitment is to supporting children and young people in finding ways to ensure that their voices are heard in the discussions that are impacting on their future safety and and well-being. And as I said, climate change is disproportionately affecting the lives of particularly vulnerable, the vulnerable children and their families that, that uh, and youth and families that we we work with in some of the world's most challenging places and building green skills is vital if they're to survive and thrive into the future. But I suppose um, one of the messages that, that we're also really keen to get across is that there is hope and, you know, being proactive is what needs to happen. As uh, Antonio Guterres said there, it's uh, it's not the time for despair, it's the time for action. So, for example, some of the initiatives that, that we're in, involved with is, you know, in Tanzania, for example, at a mm. local political level, um, and uh, I suppose as part of our commitment to, to ensuring that young voices are heard, we uh, founded a project called the Saudi Youth Project. Saudi is a Swahili word that means voice. And this project is about supporting children to use their voices and advocate for climate action at a local political level. Um, and I suppose another exciting aspect of, of this particular project is that it's actually a joint Tanzania and Galway project mm. involving youth from both Tanzania and Galway. And They've you travelled to each other's communities. You brought a 15-year-old girl here because, uh, as you say, uh, it's to look at the situation in Tanzania, but you can't look at any environmental situation or any question uh, about the impact of climate change in any corner of the world in isolation, can you? Uh, And you brought uh, Shania Ramadani uh, to the Oireachtas, a 15-year-old girl, to speak to politicians. That's correct. Yeah, uh, yeah, Shania appeared before the Oireachtas Joint Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defence to 
address members on the topic of climate uh, change and the need to have youth voices involved. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. At every level of political decision making. And that was quite a historic moment because she was the first um, underage child youth to address uh, that committee. So, um, but it, it followed on for another historical moment for, for Shania when um, she visited COP27 last, last year as a, a Saudi youth member and as a World Vision International Child Ambassador. And she um, she appeared and spoke at a very high profile uh, event about uh, children and adolescent led action for climate change. Um, but she spoke at that event about climate change from the perspective of a young person living in a community and a country already being ravaged by the environmental emergency. Um, but that's that's. It's a more extreme example, I suppose, in the community that um, Shania is is in and in the Tanzanian youth that are involved in our Saudi youth project. But even here in Ireland, young people are acutely aware, as you've said yourself, Mm. Michael, of how climate change is having an impact on their lives and, you know, the potential that it has to impact on, on their future. But I suppose... Again, that message of action and and hope and not sinking into despair. I think it's really important that we give young people, um, uh, we support them in establishing a future for themselves and ensuring that they can survive into mm. the, the future. Um, and again, coming back to the work that World Vision are doing globally, um, we're involved in supporting families and communities around training and um, learning about things like climate-proof growing methods and uh, other kind of nature restoration projects. Like we have this massive project going across a number of countries called FMNR, which stands for Farmer Managed Natural Regeneration. And that's an approach where um, farmers and communities are regenerating trees on their land to improve soil facility and grow more crops and better animal fodder. And, you know, it brings more income and a better quality of life. So I suppose Mm. those are the kind of skill sets that we are anxious to see, you know, passed on to communities and youth and building a future where, you know, we have sustainable and, you know, 
food available readily, healthy food, because we are facing into difficult uh, times ahead. Yeah, and if I, we don't I gather a lot of your work. Uh, and, I'm sorry, I gather a lot of your work, Jackie, in terms of education has to do with mindset and young people developing principles uh, that uh, they'll buy um, environmentally friendly food products uh, or they'll make decisions uh, and hold on to those principles. Uh, the other part of this is, is that uh, being idealistic is part and parcel of uh, being a young person, isn't it? Uh, more likely that the youth will be ide- idealistic anyway than older climate deniers. Uh, but what when it comes uh, to the future and practical decisions that young people will have to make uh, as they get older, will they compromise their principle if uh, their principles? If, for example, they're saying I- I'd never uh, buy a house unless it, it was envir- environmentally friendly. Uh, and had heat pumps and all these things that we're hearing about that we should be doing to our homes uh, until they go to buy a house and realise that the only house they can afford has a dirty old boiler in it. Yeah, I I mean, that's that's an interesting point, but I suppose uh, that is... None of these things happen overnight, and that's where the idea of a just transition comes into into play, where it's about fairly and uh, carefully transitioning into more sustainable ways of of living, uh, ways that are not going to impact on the on the planet in a negative way that is life threatening, not just for for nature, for biodiversity, but for humankind. And so that message, I think, is something that young people are acutely aware of and that their priorities around uh, where they live, how they live, what they eat. uh, And that decision making at a local level, at a macro level, can impact into the wider. Of course, we know that that, that the big decision making has to be around um, industry and agriculture and change that's implemented at that uh, much broader level. But the way people live and the lives that they live and how they advocate and put that pressure politically to uh, ensure that their lives are safe going into the future is something that we're really keen to empower young people with and through, as I mentioned, the Saudi Youth Project with youth in Galway and Tanzania. It really was very inspiring. We brought um, a group of of Galway youth to to Tanzania and then a, a group of Tanzanian youth to Galway and they were able to share their experiences and advocate at their particular local political levels and demand the change that they want to see happen so that their futures can be safe. I mean, we see it on the ground in in Ireland with things like the um, increased numbers of of people taking the plunge and and, and buying electric cars, for example. I know Mm. that's something that at this stage you make the point that might seem like an expensive option that's out of people's reach, but there are other things happening at at local levels around around making houses, you know, insulating houses, Mm. these sort of local level initiatives or local energy um, initiatives and, you know, broader energy. So it's about kind of making those local decisions and making the bigger decisions that are going to, you know, keep the youth of today safe so that they can be the leaders of of tomorrow. And if people are interested in reading more about it, I'd be delighted if they'd look at our website, which is worldvision.ie, and look at the work that we're doing and support it in any way that you can. We're we're a 
we're always looking for support from people. Very good. Jackie, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Jackie Corcoran is uh, the communications and PR manager with World Vision Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we were talking about the latest Farmers Journal poll on uh, the programme last week and how three in four farmers have uh, told uh, the researchers that they would vote for a bespoke Farmers Party if that was possible in the next election. It was a bad poll, if ever there was a bad poll for Fine Gael. Its support in the farming community has dropped from almost half of farmers uh, to uh, just over a third of farmers over the course of five years. Uh, That's a 34% rating, uh, which is down 4% since December and 14% since 2018. Let's uh, speak uh, to Colin Markey, Fine Gael MEP, indeed a farmer. Farmer yourself, Colin Markey, for many years. Uh, are you surprised at the results of uh, this poll and how your party has fallen out of favour with so many farmers? Hello, Colin. I'm not sure if uh, uh, you can uh, move the phone or something. It's um, muzzled. Muffled. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah. Well, I was just saying, like, back, I suppose, at the start of that poll, we uh, we would have had the Ministry for Agriculture for a number of years, and I think the track record of Fine Gael, when they had the Ministry of Agriculture, would have been quite positive. So I suppose the fact that that has changed is one issue. The other issue is there has been many, many challenges in relation to agriculture over the last number of years, be it Brexit, be it the environment, and a number of things like that. So basically, uh, like they are, I suppose, challenges that a party and government have had to face. I suppose also you have to bear in mind that Fine Gael is still the preferred party among farmers, despite the fact that we've been in government for 11 years. Mm. So I think a record is quite positive in agriculture and mid, mid-term in government, there's always that challenge, you know, so... I wouldn't put an enormous amount of store on it. It is also the middle of summer. The poll was only 400 people. And I wouldn't put an enormous amount of store on it. But at the same time, we do recognise we have to work hard to to uh, work for uh, both the rural community in general and agriculture and make sure their concerns and issues are being addressed. Okay, so uh, it would be a different outcome if it was a Fine Gael minister. Um, does that mean that there have been problems with the Fianna Fáil minister? I wouldn't, uh, it's not going to get into the ministry, but I suppose there have been many challenges. I think that's the main thing. Like, if you look at the Fine Gael minister when he was there, the, the industry did progress very significantly in the last number okay. of years, though, I say. We've had to deal with Brexit. Mm. We've had to deal with... Well, far, like far, farmers clearly aren't happy with Charlie McConnellogue. Uh, 21% uh, believe he, he's doing a good job. Uh, why is he doing such a bad job if nearly 80% uh, don't agree? I think one of the problems we have with agriculture in Ireland in general at the moment is there's a, there's a very strong divide between, let's say, the rural perspective and the farming perspective and the, the broader public opinion. And we've failed over the last number of years to represent that voice effectively or bring those two sides to one place. And I think farmers feel that they're, they're being isolated and they're being, if you like, at a... a blamed for a lot of the environmental challenges and I suppose there's a concern that the agricultural voice they feel they have a part to play they can make a major contribution in addressing the environmental challenges 
And sometimes the field of voice has been lost and the, the part they're, the big part that they're playing and mm. the part they're trying to play in terms of addressing those issues is not being voiced or supported. And they, I think they feel at a political level that there's not enough done to, to show what, what farmers are doing to address environmental issues. I think that's mm. a concern. Do, 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 you, do you agree? I think farmers are going a long way in terms of looking at the issues. They recognise honestly that there are challenges in the sector, mm. but they, they feel that, that the solutions to those challenges can be found from within the sector, those closest to the industry. And I think there is but, a concern. But, but, but do, do, you, do you agree with that perspective and that it's falling on Charlie McConnell's deaf ears? I think uh, everybody in politics on all sides of this debate have to work closer together. And I think uh, it's become... Was that why Fine Gael did a solo run on the Nature Restoration Law? I think maybe Michael Healy Ray summed it up for your party best, telling you that if you proceeded as was planned, uh, that people would rather get the bubonic plague than vote Fine Gael. Was he correct? Oh, I don't. I don't think he was correct. I think the reality is Fine Gael took a very uh, considered position in relation to nature restoration. We recognise those. But you did a solo uh, run, did you not? Uh, um, and uh, broke away from the government policy, much uh, I think to the despair of the Green Party. Uh, and was it because of what we're seeing in this Irish Farmers Journal poll uh, and that sentiment uh, that you've just expressed yourself that the voices of farmers are falling on the deaf ears of the agricultural minister. I wouldn't. I don't think Fine Gael did it. Did a solo run. We certainly made a strong case in terms of looking that the the, the targets were in nature restoration were achievable and that they were they were practical in terms of how they could be implemented. And that was within government. We made that case. It was ultimately a government position that we backed. And I don't think I wouldn't see it as as been divided. Okay, we certainly wanted to make sure that that government position represented the voice of rural Ireland, and I think we did that quite effectively. And in a lot of ways, I think a lot was achieved in nature restoration, both in the protection of nature and making it deliverable in terms of at a practical level from a farmer's perspective. So I think there was a lot achieved, and certainly I would say Fine Gael, just to be clear, I certainly would say Fine Gael were at the centre of leading that, I, I, I feel like arriving at that position. But it was a position where we brought the government with us, and it was a position where I suppose we stood out from, from uh, some of our own people in Europe in terms of standing with the government, in terms of recognising that a lot had been achieved and, and mm. could be... But was that achieved. was that your way of speaking to farmers, saying don't blame us at the next poll for decisions made by a Fianna Fáil minister or policies uh, that have been brought forward by the Green Party? No, it was us saying that they, they, these are the concerns that people have in rural Ireland and mm. that we have to build them into the policy today. It's not about elections. It's about okay. what was the best outcomes in terms of nature restoration. Okay, but do you believe this coalition is damaging support for Fine Gael amongst farmers? I think this coalition has to make sure that it represents their, that that rural piece effectively. I think the fact that, if you like, there 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 has been more, let's say, rural independence, and there, there has the talk of even the talk of even a farmers' party is an indication that we in mainstream politics have to make sure the voice of of the people that are 
let's say, mm. looking to champion an alternative, that we address the issues that are the concerns are there. Okay. We have to. It sounds like you have concerns about your coalition partners uh, and uh, as to whether Fianna Fáil or the Greens are listening to farmers. Sorry, I just missed what you said there, Michael. I say it sounds as though you have concerns about Fianna Fáil and uh, the Green Party listening to farmers. I don't think it's necessarily whether it's Fianna Fáil or the Green Party. Uh, it's, it's more about where we are in relation to, uh, let's say, making sure that we don't have a polarised scenario where uh, the, the rural agenda and the agricultural agenda don't become the opposite side of the coin to a sustainable future for the for the country as a whole. I think there is a very are, are, are they not the concerns you have with uh, the Fine Gael partners in government? I think we, we I think we have to work with our partners in government to mm. make sure, as a government, we represent that well. And yes, I would have a concern that we mm. I voiced this perspective before. We have to we, we have to make sure that we're about building consensus rather than polarisation. And I think mm. as a, as a as a as a coalition that represents three different perspectives. We have to bring those three perspectives, those different perspectives together, and particularly in relation to a. Where I see that, I, I, I just to be clear with this matter, I see there's a very clear win in this. There's a very clear win where we can meet our, our, our environmental challenge by working with the, 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 the stakeholders and we're all in it together, and we, and we can find a, a, a solution that works for everybody. Sometimes I do think. Certain elements, including some within our government, see it as just they don't see the two the two sides of this mm. debate. And certainly, I've had m- much engagement. I was even talking to, to to one of the green ministers yesterday at the Tullamore show about the need for us to, to find a common understanding in relation to how we can, if you like, build build uh, an outcome that works for in the industry, but equally is a sustain like. It's an agriculture's interest that we have a sustainable future, that we take on the challenges we face. Because if we don't, the sector will be damaged in the long run. And so it's in everyone's interest that we get this right, but we'll never get it right if we set one side against the other. And in fact, to the like of Eamon Ryan, he's come out and said that in the last couple of months very clearly, that he recognises that, uh, if you like, it's working with stakeholders rather than uh, uh, making them the, you know, they're criticising and knocking them because if you don't work with you won't the, the actors mm. are the ones that are finding the solution ultimately yeah farmers feel otherwise though don't they they don't feel um, as though uh, the government uh, in particular the Green Party is working with them I think that's that's something you need to work through and I think one of the problems but we you, have you, you agree with that I think one of the problems we have in general is that if you look at the progression of government over the last 10 years, that the mainstream parties in government have had less rural voices. And those rural voices have moved across to rural independents, who in a lot of ways have have made Mm. their position out of polarising that situation. So I think to further polarise that won't serve anyone's interest. And I think what we really need to do is to see, and that's my responsibility and the, the people who are trying to build that bridge, it's, it's our responsibility to find that common ground. And I think my concern about, let's say, a farmer's party or, an, let's say, an extreme rural agenda party is going to further polarise that debate. And it would be good, like, we are becoming a more organised society. Mm. So in order to, to have a voice for, for the rural aspect of that society, to have its voice, it really needs to, to 
to uh, work closely with those who aren't from, from, from a rural background. And if you, if you marginalise yourself as a small group with a, with a solely a rural voice, then you will leave yourself in a situation where you, you're, you're isolated away from mainstream politics and actually it makes your voice weaker. And that's really mm. what has happened in the last 10 years. And that's what's driven the frustration. The fact that within mainstream politics, there's less voices. But that's because... There's so many voices on the sideline who are serving to polarise that debate and, a, in, a, if you like, suggesting that, that it, it's an us and them. And if we go down the us and them a road, a, it, it's a road to nowhere. Well, that's future, the way many parties or many farmers feel, uh, don't they? I should say that that uh, Farmers Journal survey was of uh, 1,900 farmers. Uh, Charlie McConnell log satisfaction rating at twenty one percent. Were you surprised that the minister polled so badly? I would I would say that that, that seems a very low figure. There's no doubt. I think traditionally a low figure for a minister, but it's not like agriculture probably faced an unprecedented number of challenges over the last number of years, mm. and certainly uh, like they are not just coming from the government; they're okay. coming from the European level but as well. That low rating was it of surprise to you? I think given the, the context that we're in at the moment, it is certainly it's disappointing, but to some degree it's not surprising given the, the amount of challenges that agriculture is facing and the, the amount of the, the issues that... Uh, uh, in other words, the Fine Gael minister wouldn't have been really able to do much better. Well, the Fine Gael ministers in the past certainly did, did a good job, and mm. I'm not saying the current minister isn't doing a good job, I know that. <laughs> and I, I'm wondering why, if you think that a Fine Gael minister would rate far higher than 21%. Uh, why would I think... Oh, I, no, uh, why, why you're not saying he's not doing a good job. I mean, you're not saying he's doing a, a good job, but you're not saying he's doing a bad job. Uh, but you are saying that a Fine Gael minister would rate much higher than the 21% uh, that Charlie McDonald... It's a difficult time, I think, in fairness to Fine Gael ministers and the agricultural sector, we would have always endeavoured to work fairly closely with them. Uh, I have full understanding of the, the minister's position. Well, we are mid-term. It has been a difficult time, be it nature restoration, industrial emissions, directive, pesticides, all these issues that we're looking to deal with at the moment are very challenging. Okay. But beside that Brexit and indeed COVID and the cost, the inflationary input cost due to the war, it really is a very challenging time. And to be fair to the government, in the context of where we are, I think the government has done a very, very good job. But sometimes when you're in the eye of that storm in terms of those cost bases, mm-hmm. reducing prices now, all that, farmers are frustrated. And I suppose the minister would be the, the point of, of uh, at the, at the centre of that okay. frustration. All right, we'll leave it there. At the end of the day, it is a difficult time in terms of the amount of challenges that are out there at the moment. And I, I think in the context of that, the government is doing a reasonably good job. And maybe that's not seen by everybody. And that's... That, that's that's the way it is. Alright, we'll leave there. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme today. That's uh, Fine Gael MEP Colin Markey. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, undoubtedly, if you've a child under eight years of age, it's free to go to the doctor for all children under eight in uh, this country. This brings 78,000 children under uh, the system which gives free GP care to children in uh, this country. Let's uh, speak uh, to Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on children, and that is Senator 
Erin McGreehan, who's on uh, the line. And uh, a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, undoubtedly, this is a, a great move by the government uh, for all very small children. It's absolutely wonderful news. And, and we all, this has been mooted for a long time. It's part of the plan. We, we have in plans to increase it to you know, under 12s. And then we, obviously, Michael, you know about Slauncher Care, and that is for to expand you know, universal uh, free GP visit cards. So as of last week and as of last Friday, people can now, families can now apply for the free GP visit card for their sixes and seven-year-olds. Um, it's really good news. Um, and as a parent with, with young children, I know how costs can start escalating during the during particularly during the, the winter season when cold and flu hit. It's quite expensive. We all know to, to go mm. to your GP. This will be a, a, a welcome respite. And we know young young children, colds and flus go through go through everybody. Um, and quite often that it's the you you need a doctor to see it. It's, it does it doesn't go without a little bit of help. Okay. So. Very, very positive news. Very important news um, for for movement on that on that slauncher care. A movement on 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 making sure that we are moving towards a universal universal GP visit cards for everybody. That's a long way out. But again, we can only do these step by step. Okay, well, there's a, a significant step forward, I'm sure, in that half a million people now are entitled to a free GP card. Uh, but obviously then there's concern about the pressure that this puts on services. And it's already very difficult, impossible at times, to get to see a, a doctor. Doctors have expressed concern. Why is that concern not being heeded? Well, absolutely, and we all know, and I think, don't think anybody, anybody in the country hasn't had a, had a, have to wait, wait for, for to see their GP, and if it's not urgent, then you could have to week, wait a week or a week and a half. And um, this, uh, this move and announced that was announced in July, in July, and opened up last Friday, has been agreed with the Irish Medical Organisation, and you know the government doesn't move on these big these big issues with out of approval and without negotiations and, and, and discussions with the, with Irish medical organisations. There has been a, a, an agreement, a GP agreement in 2023 with the IMO and it was in a, in a package worth 30 million euros specifically to support the capacity mm. in general practice and it does allow GPs to retain staff, recruit additional staff to meet yeah. demand. This is all new in July and in June Michael, I think, you know, it was in the, it was in the news very much welcome for all our new students that there is a positive step step offering more training courses to doctors who want to specialize specialize in GPs GP care um, and also new student places new college placement places mm. a huge huge increase in 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 that area and for for example with the for for doctors let's say for medical schools um, I think it's an increase of up to a double a double um, the amount of of students okay. are going to be accepted into medical courses in the country. Okay, and all of that will take time, though. Uh, I mean, would it not have been uh, prudent to hold off on issuing uh, these GP cards to uh, the six and seven year olds in the country until we had a, a GP service where you could get to see a, a doctor today or tomorrow? I think it's important to note, and I go back, to, this has been agreed with the IMO, agreed with the body that has been working 
with mm. with the GP practitioners, and we all know that you know we, we don't. The government doesn't bully um, the IMO into into doing something without negotiations. And as I said, thirty million euros have been added to. And to well, absolutely. Well, that pays for children whether they go to see the doctor or not. I mean, that's part of negotiating the contract. Uh, and no, that's to support the capacity. Yeah, that's not in yeah. line with the with the with the with the fund that that pays for the visit. Um, there is an inc- and and also an increase in the cap- mm. capacitation rates. So there has been an awful lot of more money added to this. Um, there is for it. This year, mm. we are going to have up to 100 new GPs um, coming into Ireland this year from abroad and 250 next year. That's only in the, on the, the GP, the non-EU training, GP training programme. And again, I must add that with the, with the, the, the Irish training, training um, places, that is going to increase by 35% um, to 258 uh, from 258 apologies, um, so that again, things are m- moving along in a positive direction. There will be more GPs trained next year, the following year, right up, right into the future. And mm. clearly, there is an acknowledgement for this government that we need to increase our medical workforce um, and plan for the future. This is a part of it, mm. hugely positive step. Is it, you know, with okay. training places? If we don't have the training places, we will not have the GPs. Okay, so should we now, not have the GPs before we give the GP cards? Though, I mean, that is uh, the fundamental question because uh, it is a question of uh, the horse before the cart. Some would say, uh, as you know, uh, you could ring your doctor today and spend the rest of the day hoping to get through, let alone get an appointment. Uh, and if uh, you're new to a town or village, uh, you may not be able to get to see a, a doctor and would have to travel in order to see a doctor. Well, I think we have to think of the of, of an awful lot of cash-strapped parents and families in the country. And up to under-eights will not have to pay that €50 Euro, um, to see their doctor. And that's very important. And I don't think there's going to be a... There will be an increase in, 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 in doctor visits. But parents do not want to be sitting in a doctor's waiting room unless it's absolutely urgent and necessary um, and parents will do that and find the money if they need to do that but otherwise when you're under age we don't have to do, find the money now and I think that there is what we should be focusing on there is a huge increase in capacity coming as I said 100 GPs coming from abroad this year this year and 250 next year that's not including the GP training places that's coming that, that, that is um, that is in, in, in Irish graduates so again, there is is a huge amount of GPs coming on board. A huge amount of work has been gone on into into the into this, um, and it has been agreed with the IMO. Um, I, and again, I would say that thirty million capacity of euro to support the capacity within the system and um, to retain staff, recruit additional staff to meet demand to support. GP services, the GP practices that are absolutely critical to 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 us all, and we all know if we if you can't get a GP, you're going to go to A and E. So we, we, there is there is a huge amount of work being done, huge amount of work needed, um, but I, it's a very positive step in the in the pathway towards supporting our GPs supporting families who are struggling with the cost of living crisis at the minute 
and, 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 and working towards support the community for, for our community GPs. That's okay. hugely important, Michael. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed, uh, Senator, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, that is Senator Aaron McGreen, who's Fianna Falls spokesperson on children. Uh, thanks to Mick and Kel's uh, texting about the interview with Fine Gael MEP Colin Markey saying uh, that was the best form of dodging the question. Uh, I've heard talk about going around in circles. I'm confused, uh, says Mick and Kel's. Uh, another WhatsApp message then from somebody who says, Michael, I just want to highlight this while you're speaking about the teacher shortage. My son has his qualification he has his qualifications as an SNA, a special needs assistant. And in the last year, he's applied to up on 20 positions as advertised on educationposts.ie. But it seems a lot of these posts are already filled despite advertising them. Plus, the really frustrating part is that with all of these posts that he's applied for, only two have emailed him back. The rest don't even have the decency to reply. I just think it's so unfair that they're allowed to advertise a position if it has already been filled and also some of these posts requesting uh, the people to post their application, which is another wasted expense if the post is already filled. Uh, thanks for reading out uh, the message. Maybe one day my son will eventually get the opportunity to do what he really wants and work in a school. Uh, thank you indeed uh, to the listener who sent that to us. Uh, we Margaret then WhatsApping us. She says, Michael, I, I used to listen to RTE radio and some TV. Now it's obvious I listen to my local radio station. I've always questioned how those presenters in RTE, I take it, Margaret, are on such exorbitant wages and how they have the audacity to think that they're worth it. But who'd refuse money? Anyway, Michael, the point I'm making is I'm not listening or watching anything that RTE produces anymore. Having said all this, I've great empathy with the lesser paid uh, people in that establishment. It must be a very difficult place to work in at the moment. And lastly, how would some of these RTE overpaid presenters know or understand people in a crisis when they have such high incomes? It's a joke, says Margaret. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, Margaret. Michael Reed on LMFM. Tomorrow, the 15th of August, will be the 25th anniversary of the real IRA car bomb in Oma that killed 29 men, women and children, as well as unborn twins on that terrible afternoon in 1998. It was the worst single atrocity atrocity, uh, in uh, the history of uh, the Troubles. Yesterday, a memorial service was held in Oma. Let's uh, speak uh, to Michael Galler who, who lost his son, Aidan. Aidan was uh, just uh, 21 years of age at the time of uh, the bomb. Uh, a very good morning to you, Michael, and thank you uh, indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. It's hard uh, to believe uh, that more time has passed since your son's death uh, than the time that he had on this planet. It really is hard to believe that it was 25 years ago. I'm sure all of us remember uh, the atrocity very vividly, uh, but none more so than yourself and the other families uh, and a, a day that you'll never forget. Absolutely. Good morning, Michael, to you and your listeners. Yeah, it's uh, You know, when we started this 
campaign for a public inquiry. It was really about 23 years ago. We knew it was going to be a long road, but we just never thought it was going to be as long. Um, Yeah, we we had a beautiful interdenominational service yesterday in Oma. All the clergy took part, and uh, a lot of the families, some of them just come together once a year, particularly the families from Bunkrana, and uh, some of us are going down to a service in the church in Bunkrana this evening. I'm sure. Uh, It's um, a long period of time by anybody's uh, reckoning. As you say, the campaign has been going for 23 years. Uh, There is to be an inquiry, is there? There is. um, The British government announced the inquiry in February of this year and they have appointed a chairperson, uh, Lord Turnbull, which we met last week. And, uh, yeah, he, he, he seems very capable and, um, you know, a person that we hope that will look into a lot of the issues that we have been raising and answers that we want, uh, questions we want answered over that 23-year period. And uh, we, we it's vitally important that the Irish government uh, either set up their own inquiry or cooperate with the inquiry. That was recommended by the judge um, I took a judicial review against the government mm. decision not to have a public inquiry and that lasted 10 years and at the end of that the judge recommended that uh, he couldn't com- compel but he recommended an article 2 compliant inquiry on both sides of the border so we're um, we're hopeful, we've had a meeting with uh, the Tonishta, Michal Martin, and um, the Justice Minister uh, about a month ago. And uh, yeah, it, it was positive, and we, we're looking forward to mm. th- hopefully this will be the final stage, um, it, you know, in, in the Oma story, certainly for us. Uh, and what I would, I, I would appeal that to anyone who has any understanding, information uh, can add the smallest piece to the jigsaw to come forward and, uh, you know, cooperate with the inquiry when it starts. Okay, and uh, the chair of uh, the inquiry, Judge Alan Turnbull, is uh, to take some time uh, speaking uh, to yourself and uh, the other family survivors uh, in terms of writing up the terms of reference. There's an awful lot known about what happened uh, on uh, the 15th of August 1998 uh, and uh, I'm sure uh, that you all have an awful lot uh, in terms of what uh, direction you'd like this inquiry to take. Absolutely. I mean, the, the first thing has to be is it has to be open and transparent, and there has to be accountability there. Um, this is it's not a blame game. It's um, it's important to me personally to find out what was done right because there would have been things done right, and what things that weren't done right, and those lessons need to be learned and to passed on to others so that the 31 people that died and the 250 people that were injured, lives really do count. Mm. Well, of course they do, um, but uh, so many lives lost um, 
Could that loss of life have been prevented, uh, I I suppose, is uh, the fundamental question. Uh, What are your thoughts on that, Michael? Well, my thoughts are are, are, are many, many since really since uh, Nula alone published her report in in December 2001. I have said that OMA was a preventable atrocity. Now, I may have got it wrong. And what I would say to both governments is, if I've got it wrong, please show me where I've got it wrong. But it's only by examining the facts and learning the lessons that we can move forward. And, you know, a a disaster, a catastrophe, when they happen, it's not one thing goes wrong. It's many things go wrong at the same time. Mm. And recognising those wrongs, uh, which may not be wrongdoing, but they may be failures, uh, can be very difficult yeah. because people have to be held uh, accountable and uh, you, uh, as the bereaved families, need to, to feel that uh, the inquiry brought uh, some level of justice are, after all of these years to you uh, in terms of the big questions that you've had about this. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the, the key and fundamental thing here is the terms of reference. That's the issues that the inquiry is going to deal with. And, you know, in, in, in Dublin, we call them tribunals. And Dublin must be the European capital of tribunals. And many of those tribunals have actually yielded answers. And that's why it is important to examine the facts. The Irish Times is uh, reporting today that the Irish government has had sight of uh, the draft terms of reference um, uh, but uh, obviously, uh, or I think it's obvious at least, Michael, uh, that they won't uh, be making any definitive statement on it until the terms of reference are are finalised but uh, there were encouraging soundings, uh, I think, from Micheál Martin when he he met you last month and indeed uh, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, who's said uh, that, as has been the case with other inquiries, the state is going to cooperate fully, uh, as may be required. Uh, and it certainly would be required, wouldn't it? This would have to be a, a north-south inquiry. Well, absolutely, because, you know, there's a very strong uh, cross-border element to this crime. But, I, yes, I, you're absolutely right again. I mean, what I said to the Tanishta and uh, the Justice Minister when I met them, and what I said to the Northern Ireland Secretary, uh, Heaton Harris, was the British government and the Irish government are not our enemies. We, we need to work together. We need to um, establish, if there were feelings, and if those feelings, as you quite rightly said, there could be human feelings. You know, there's none of us perfect. We can all make mistakes, but they still need to be examined. And if there is the case where people could have done more and didn't do it, then they need to be answerable and held to account for that. Okay. Michael, it really is hard to believe. Uh, It's uh, 25 years. Um, Thanks uh, for speaking to us again today. Um, I'm sure that... uh, in, in time, uh, this inquiry will be held and that that will bring about uh, the end of your campaign for justice, which is really what it has been uh, since 1998. Uh, and uh, 
Thank you, as I say, um, for joining us. Uh, always good to talk to you. Michael Gallagher's uh, son, Aidan, was one of uh, the 29 people who lost his life in uh, the Oma bomb along with uh, two unborn twins. Uh, just uh, some comments before we leave you today. Uh, somebody uh, in touch on WhatsApp saying, I'm an SNA and every year a big percentage of SNAs are let go in June. Then the government announces that they're recruiting a few thousand in September. Therefore, the ones let go may fill these positions. Also, as for letting SNAs know about CVs, they don't feel the need as SNAs were not treated as important uh, and were not seen as an important part of the system. There's no respect for SNA, says our caller. Somebody else uh, telling us uh, that uh, there's been an accident on the M1 after Junction 4 heading northbound before the Apple Green. Thank you for that. That's our programme for today. Maggie McGuire researched. Chris Murray was in the control chair. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.